Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation with Caitlin Kiernan, a breast cancer survivor and the author of the book, Pretty Sick, The Beauty Guide for Women with Cancer. Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Caitlin, I thought we'd start by at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, when you were first diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Tell us more about that whole experience and the journey that you went through. Well, I think probably it was very similar to other women. It's very surreal. Everybody has their you know, specific experience. I was falling asleep one night. I had very small, dense breasts. I was falling asleep and I rolled over. I'm a side sleeper. And my arm grazed against my breast and I felt a little like nodule, you know, like I felt a lump. And it's exactly what they say. It it was a pea-sized lump, but I come from a family of women with cystic breasts and was used to sort of having a little bit of lumps and bumps. So I waited to go to my doctor. I waited a month because I thought maybe it was a hormonal thing. And uh, after a month, it wasn't um, gone. So I went and she sent me in for a mammogram. It did not show up on the first mammogram. Mm. It did not show up on a second mammogram uh, two months later. And so when I was at the hospital for the second mammogram, I sort of insisted that they give me a sonogram. I literally waited four hours while I got an emergency approval from my insurance. I, you know, I really went rogue on the hospital staff. But um, within two minutes of them starting the sonogram, they found three lumps. Wow. Two in my right breast and one in my left breast. Okay, and then what happened? And then the journey begins. You know, you get told to meet with your surgeons, which I always thought was weird because I think most people don't realize you have to meet with the surgeon before you meet with the oncologist. It's yeah. it's sort of backwards, and it kind of threw me for a loop. And you're just immediately in it. You're meeting with doctors. You're hearing terminology you've never heard before. It's a very overwhelming experience. Um, and you try to sort through everything you're hearing to find your right medical team and um, and yeah, and that's sort of how it began. And I, I was very lucky that I did have, you know, as a journalist, I I know a lot of people. So I immediately put out emails to everybody saying, like, who do who do I need to be seeing? Who are my doctors? And I made appointments with a bunch of different surgeons. Like, I really did interview people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it was because I was so nervous about my health and the diagnosis or if I was worried about, you know, physically what. I wanted to get the best result because I was talking about sort of the main anatomy of my womanhood that would be showing and I wanted and I was young and single and um, but I really did put my these inner you know I, I did it like interviews I really did interview these doctors and then I found the one that clicked and you know it's not only about the expertise that they bring. Oftentimes, it's your connection to that doctor. And I never discount that because you are beginning a long-term relationship with this person. And it's really important that you have 
you feel like you're heard mm-hmm. and you feel like you get the explanations you need. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was very uh, blessed that I met Dr. Aliza Port, who ended up being my surgical oncologist at um, Mount Sinai mm-hmm. in New York City. Um, and she then gave me a list of plastic surgeons that she worked with. And, um, you know, I, I interviewed them and found the one that I liked, which was Dr. Leo Keegan, who was amazing. And it just started from, you know, that's sort of how it begins. Right. And then, and and so you had your surgery mm-hmm. and, and reconstruction. Not immediately. So I did lumpectomy. I did a lumpectomy. The plan was to do a lumpectomy with chemo and radiation. And when I, and I did the lumpectomy, I did the chemo. And when I got to my radiation appointment, they told me they were going to have to probably radiate the top part of my right lung because of where the tumor placement was. And I just was like, I'm out. I got very nervous. You know, I just, they told me all the side effects that could happen because of the radiation, chronic pneumonia. And it was just like, am I just making matters worse? And so I just at that point decided to opt out and do a double mastectomy. And my doctors were great. I mean, my my oncologist was like, well, this will be the first time anybody's changed their protocol mid, you know, but he was like, it's your life. You have to do what you feel is the best plan for you. And everybody was completely supportive and wonderful. And I'm glad I did it. I've never looked back and said, I regret that at Mm -hmm. all. I, you know, it's reconstruction and everything is a very weird beast. But um I I can sleep at night because yeah. of it. Yeah. And so I think a few things in your story are so important. One is to advocate for yourself and do your research. And the other is to really follow your heart in terms of what your decisions are. Because ultimately, it is your life, your body. Um, and you need to be happy and comfortable with the decisions that you make. So... So where along this journey did you kind of come up with the idea to write a book? I mean, was it just <laughs> the uh, the experiences that you went through or uh, and then reflecting upon them that, yeah. that kind of got you to the book? Or No, I never really intended to write a book. Mm-hmm. I... Um, when I was going through treatment, you know, as each thing happens, as you start chemo, as you start doing, you know, as you start having your surgeries, I would, of course, start to look up what I needed to worry about. How was my skin going to heal? What was chemo going to do to my hair and my eyelashes and my nails? And, um, you know, the first protocol that was suggested to me for my chemo regimen, I was going to, the possibility of losing my fingernails and I was going to have to do like cold cap or gel therapies and I was so nervous about that had no idea what it was as most people don't because Mm -hmm. why would you need to know about that Um, and so as a beauty director for a magazine I just started calling all of the people that I interviewed I would call the dermatologists that I talked to and I would talk to you know the celebrity hairstylists and manicurists and say okay what am I what do I do how many days do I have before my hair starts falling out what am I going to do How do I protect my nails? What do I do about my skin? I started getting a lot of hives. I was getting very dermic. You know, I would get acne and my skin was turning really red, like, you know, all the things that could happen to you during chemo. And, and, you know, while it's happening, because cancer treatment has come so far, people can go about their normal life. So Mm -hmm. I was 
at work. I was going to work and I'm like, I want to I need to look presentable. You know, I still need to kind of pull it together enough to do my job and not be distracting, not only for me, but for other people around me. So um, so it wasn't until kind of the end of my treatment that I was hearing from people. Oh, I, I didn't realize that you were sick or, you know, the people that did know would say, you know, you are amazing. You've really kind of been able to Mm self-care. And and it's impressive because there's a lot going on. Um, And 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 then I started thinking to myself one day during a chemo, during one of my chemotherapy sessions, I thought to myself, I don't know what the woman, the single mom without health insurance living in, you know, a rural part of our country who doesn't have access to great health care that I do. What is she doing right now? How is she taking care of herself and and able to, you know, survive this journey emotionally and physically? And I thought, you know, I just need to pay forward all, all of my all of my blessings. I need to put it in a book and put it out there in the world because it wasn't all of this information wasn't in one place. And it's amazing how many little things can make a huge, huge difference in just how you feel, um, you know, mouth sores, for example. Like, they are so painful, and they can cause you – it can cause such problems for you to eat. And if you're not eating, you it can, you know, cause your treatment to be delayed. But there are – mouthwashes that are off protocol, you know, that help immensely, like, you know, so to me, it was really um, important for me to just get this information out there to sort of help the other women on this journey. And, you know, you being a beauty director of magazine, for you, physical appearance was very important. But I think for other women going through the cancer journey, how they look is often very much tied to how they feel as a woman and as a person um, going through this. Yeah. And I think when I started to ask the questions, you know, for me, I was very concerned about how my reconstruction was going to appear. Mm -hmm. And I think most women are. Mm -hmm. But I feel like sometimes women don't feel like they have the right or they feel like they're going to be judged in that. And even when my hair started falling out and I would say to my doctor, oh, you didn't you told me I wasn't going to lose all my hair. And he'd be like, you know, it's not my job to worry about your hair. I'm trying to kill this disease. And I totally get what he's saying. Like, it's not his job. His job is to care for my the cancer, to get the cancer out and to get me, to increase my possibilities of living. And so I don't um, marginalize that when people are like, and eh, don't be focused on that. But I think because um, it's it is so it is so tied to our self-esteem and our ability to kind of you know put a spring in our step it's it's hard enough when you really start to become so detached from your body because your body is changing on you um it was a surreal experience to look in the mirror every day and not recognize the person looking back at me and i'm like how do i carry on in the day when i don't even recognize who i am anymore and you're worried about so many things that if you can just look good when you walk out the door, it, mm-hmm. it's that paves the road for the rest of the day, for the day after the next. It's it really is. I I can't underestimate how important it is. And it's not a vanity issue, in my opinion. Right. It really is a it's an adjunct therapy, in my opinion. Right. Um, and I think um 
I'm hearing more and more, you know, since the book came out, I hear from so many people saying, you're absolutely right. Like it, it, when I was able to draw on an eyebrow that looked like an eyebrow and I wasn't self-conscious about it, I was able to just focus and do what I needed to do. And it's just like, you know, it's little things that really add up and make a difference. Yeah. It's almost like giving yourself a sense of normalcy Yeah, when things have gone abnormal uh, with a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So 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 let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you experienced and some of the ways, the tips that you bring out in the book Mm -hmm. um, that have kind of helped you in in your experience to Mm -hmm. to give our listeners a sense of of the things that they can do, small practical tips um, that people who may be going through cancer have to face. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that I think that most cancer survivors um, deal with, at least when they're going through chemotherapy, and one of the biggest concerns that we all hear is, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my hair. Yeah. You know, it was fascinating for me to learn upon um, interviewing all these oncologists that it was the after relaying a diagnosis, it's the first question Mm -hmm. oncologists get. So to me, that says a million things about, you know, the concern. And it's not a vanity concern. It really is about like, oh, what am I about to you know, how, how rogue is my body going to go on me and what do I need to do? So there's there's a lot of tips with that, you know. Well, you know what? We are going to learn all about those tips right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about beauty and cancer and get a lot more tips from our guest, Caitlin Kiernan. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company that has developed four FDA-approved cancer medicines in the past three years for a variety of tumor types. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Caitlin Kiernan. We're talking about her journey with breast cancer and her book, Pretty Sick, The Beauty Guide for Women with Cancer. And right before the break, we were talking about how it's really not vanity, this idea that women going through a cancer diagnosis want to look and feel normal. Um, And it really gives them a sense of ownership over their bodies when, in a sense, you feel like you've kind of lost some of that ownership when you've been given a cancer diagnosis and now have to face treatments that cause hair loss and nail darkening and on and on and on and on. So we were talking about one of the biggest concerns, I think, that we all hear when anybody hears the word chemo. The first question is always, oh, my God, am I going to lose my hair? So what 
what are your practical kind of tips and advice about that? Did you go through that? And how did you overcome it? Yeah, I, you know, obviously, it was the first question I asked after getting all of my information from my doctor. Um, I immediately reached out to my hairstylist. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm up against. And um my hairstylist at the time was Ted Gibson, who is a Angelina Jolie's uh, hairstylist. And he said to me, the most important thing is to have a game plan. Mm-hmm. You have about 14 days, and it generally happens right before your third uh, chemotherapy cycle that th- hair will start to fall out. I think it's different for everybody, um, but it's sort of in the same range. And he's like, you know, get ahead of it. Have a plan. Um cut your hair short because there's really nothing worse than waking up and having clumps on your pillow Mm -hmm. or having it fall down the drain. Um, And when I interviewed Joan London, she said the exact same thing. She was like, you know, you really need to just get ahead of that so that you, you know, all of this stuff is like you were saying before, it's not really about vanity. It's about taking control Mm -hmm. over a situation that is spiraling out of control. There are very few things that you can control when there is a cancer diagnosis, but there are little things like being able to go in and get your hair cut into a cute, you know, cute, sexy pixie and have fun with it. My plan was to get the pompadour haircut that Rihanna got, um, because I was like, oh, you know what? I always loved that hairstyle, and I'm never going to do it again. Right. And now I have an excuse to do it. Um, and so that was my plan. My plan was to um, – and I had gone wig shopping with Ted because um, – you really want to go look for a wig while you have hair so the person in the the wig shop can look at your hair, look at how it falls, look at your texture. You know, there are some people that just want to go get a long blonde wig or like do a fun wig. But I think nine times out of 10, it's so jarring to lose your hair to begin with that you're better off sort of just replicating what you have until you are comfortable wearing wigs and sort of ease into it a little bit. Um, And so that's what I did. And that's what I suggest to people is I always say, have a plan, Mm -hmm. you know, go get your hair cut in increments, you know, maybe do a bob first, then as then the following week as more hair is falling out, you can go and get it cut. And then by the time that you buzz it, it doesn't feel so drastic. You don't feel right. this huge clump of hair or see this huge clump of hair falling. It's it's It really is um, less sad, really. And then wake shopping is, I, you know, it takes time if you get a... Um, a, a custom wig, but I don't even advocate for custom wigs. People are big on the custom wig thing, but custom wigs are high maintenance. They're real hair wigs, basically, is what they are. Um, they're they're very expensive. They can cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and they are very high maintenance. You got to wash them like real hair. You got to blow dry them. You got to try to blow dry them on your head without them pulling down on what. It's like it really is like a lot of work. So I think why a lot of women tend to want a real hair wig is because they look they look like real hair. They have, you know, um, the scalp part is, it, you know, it's it's uh, the weft of it. It looks like a real scalp. The 
so it just looks like a real hair. And when you are wearing a wig, you want it to look real. But there are, um, and a lot of women don't know this, there are synthetic wigs that have the weft of uh, that looks like a scalp. Um, there are combination synthetic real hair wigs where the front is real and the back is synthetic. So you don't have to worry about the sweat causing it to fray or, you know. So there, I go through a lot of the different um, types of wigs in my book because it's, I think a lot of women feel pressure to get the right wig and it shouldn't, you, it shouldn't be an added pressure in this tough time. It should be easy where you have the information, you you know, okay, listen, my livelihood, I'm busy, I shower a lot, I, I want to be active, a synthetic wig is better. It, listen, if you're a Joan London and you're on TV every day, you need a real hair wig. Okay, fine. But most women don't need that. And so I'm a big advocate for telling women to save their money, to save the stress, to make it easy on themselves. And when you go wig shopping, you know, you want to bring someone who's informed and who's going to tell you the truth because mm-hmm. you really don't want to walk out with that long blonde wig looking like Kim Kardashian because you're going to feel ridiculous in two days, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And and when you talk about the expensive wigs, I mean, I, I think that this is another thing that people really don't think about up front. Yeah. Um, it, is it covered at all by your insurance? So it's interesting. No, it's not. It is there. When I called, my insurance was going to give me like $50. It was so insanely low. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're talking about a real hair wig, you're talking about a wig that starts at two grand and can go up to 10 grand. It's just unaffordable. Right. But there in some, um, and I got this tip from one of my dermatologist friends who was a breast cancer survivor. In some insurance policies, there is a clause for um, like gadgets and, you know, devices and wigs can fall under that. So, yeah. And a lot of people don't know that. So it's really um, important for you to know your insurance policy and um, kind of figure out if it won't pay for a wig if if you can find another if you claim it under that. Right. Um which I found fascinating. I'm like, I wish I had known that because I could have. And she got, my dermatologist friend got $500 in that budget for that. That's so, fantastic. yeah. So that um, makes a huge difference for a lot of people, you know. Um, but you can get really great synthetic wigs for $150. You know, I would say stay away from like the $30 wig. Yeah. I would say, you know, you're going to be wearing this for a couple of months. Your head is going to be sweaty. Or, you know, it's it can get itchy. You want to be comfortable. And right. at the end of the day, you want to feel comfortable. You don't want to feel self-conscious. And you want to physically be comfortable. So, And I think the other thing that people, people always think about when they think about hair loss is the hair on the top of their head. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people may not realize is that the hair all over your body disappears, too. So that's eyelashes uh-huh. and eyebrows and everything else. Yeah. Talk to me about how that impacted you and what you did about that. Well, you know, honestly, that was the scariest thing for me because I, as even though I was concerned about my hair falling out on mm-hmm. my head, I was more concerned about my eyebrows because I'm like, what am I, I'm going to look like an alien. I'm going to look like, you know, the Twitter egg with no, no defining hair on my face. And it's hard to do 
it's hard to draw. You know, I'm not an artist. It's hard to draw an eyebrow on a given day when I have hair. So how am I going to do this? And I turned to my friend uh, Rami Gaffney, who is a cancer survivor and a makeup artist. He has done makeup for you name every celeb he's done their makeup and um you know he gave me great tips he told me you really want to look for certain types of um brow products um one that's a wax and a powder base because the powder will go on and the wax will sort of seal it onto your skin so even if you start having hot flashes which tends to happen or if you if your body temperature changes your your brows are going to stay in place and they it's easier to control putting them on. And I give um, a step-by-step on how to sort of gauge the anatomy of your face with the high point of the of the brow, of the, you know, the eye bone. I don't even, mm-hmm. is this like the, yeah. uh, 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 you your know, the orbit. eye socket? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just sort of how to figure that out. And it takes a minute. Like, let's be honest, we're not used to doing our makeup professionally like that. I certainly wasn't. And I... I'm in the industry, so for me to even say that, so it's, I give a step-by-step, and I feel like that helped, and a lot of people um, have said that it was a good guide because they never realize, realized how to do it before. <laughs> yeah. And what about your eyelashes? For a lot of women, just yeah. losing those eyelashes, you know, normally we don't really think too much about it, but yeah. for, for some people, it's really problematic. It is problematic. The short-term fix is brown eyeliner. And Hmm. what that does is if you gently line the top of your eye, you know, your lid, it gives you that definition. It frames your eye and creates that depth of field that you would get from your eyelashes until you you can um, get approval from your doctor to use something like Latisse, which does help. And I encourage people to do something like that or Viviscal once they're it's approved by their doctors and they get the okay to um, use it. I mean, my doctor was at the tail end was like, go ahead, you, you know, go ahead and use it and start yeah. get your lashes growing. And it takes a minute. I don't think a lot of people also realize that your lashes will come back and then in like two months they fall out again and then they come back again. So it's just sort of the cycle of the hair kind of growing back and getting, you know, you you have chemo curl. My hair was never the same once it came back. It's been this bizarre texture. Um, and it's the same with your eyelashes and the hair all over your body. It just comes in differently and it takes its time. And <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fun. <laughs> and then what about your nails? A lot of people who go through chemo yeah. have effects on their nails. Either yeah. their nails fall out yeah. or they turn black. Yeah. And I mean, it's... It's a visible presence. Right. But it's a visible presence. And this is what's interesting about nails is that because nails grow at such a slow rate, um, you really don't notice the changes until two months down the road. I got indentations and lines in my nails, even though my chemo protocol had um, been downgraded from the one that I was going to lose my nails. Um, you know, it's still a, a, a cell in your body. It's been affected by the chain, you know, the chemo therapy agents in your body. So, you know, for me, there's not a lot you can do with nails. It's a tough situation. What you can do is to make sure to keep cuticle oil on them. Make sure you're using your hand cream. It sounds basic, 
but it actually helps with keeping them hydrated, mm-hmm. keeping the cells, um, you know, moist. The matrix of the nail is a very important part, so you have to just be very careful and gentle with it. And and for people that are losing their um, their their nails, it's important to just keep them wrapped and yeah. talking to your doctor because there are certain. Um, you know, there are certain washes you can you can do. You probably know uh, more about this, but there are certain washes you can do on your nails just to keep the bacteria at yeah, bay. Yeah, you want to keep them clean yeah. and yeah. Uh, as much as you can. The other thing that I think a lot of women struggle with, with chemo and with radiation, is skin. Yeah. Um, skin getting dry, skin peeling. How do you deal with all of that? I mean, it's hydration, but it's it, to me, I made it a big point in the book to talk about um, using products that are science-backed and evidence-based. There is, in the cancer community, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, there's a big organic versus non-organic debate. And I'm all about using pure ingredients when you can, but sometimes those natural ingredients don't have the science and the um, delivery systems that um, a a cream, a drugstore cream Mm -hmm. might have. A perfect example of this is like, you know, oats. And um, when you have hives and inflammation and sensitive skin, it used to be that your parents would throw you in an oatmeal bath to calm all of that. But there are brands like Aveeno that have been able to isolate the molecule that helps. And so you can take a bath and it's it's efficient. Caitlin Kiernan is a breast cancer survivor and the author of the book Pretty Sick, The Beauty Guide for Women with Cancer. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.